Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today I'm going to pass off the baton to Aaron to introduce our guest. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. Yeah, normally, uh, Chris is the guy peppering me with questions, and I try to do my best to, to answer them, but we're going to do something a little different today, and we have a special guest on our program. Now, as, as you mentioned, we, we do like to deal with sort of a hodgepodge of issues where we sometimes talk theology or ethical issues, or we talk about cultural theology or various moral issues. But one of the things that whenever you get into to topics related to cultural theology or life in the here and now, there often is a legal aspect to it. And most of our listeners probably know that over the last three years or so, I took a stand against a lot of the COVID mandates and lockdown-ism that we experienced, and as a result, experienced uh, six charges. And I was super grateful to be able to um, connect with the Justice Center, who uh, helped me to get through all of that. And we had a couple of those tickets withdrawn, and uh, several of them stayed in court. So that's that's been a, a blessing in my own life. And it's just another example of how when, when you're living in the here and now, your understanding of the law and your interaction with legal structures matters. Now, we also sometimes talk in our program about sphere sovereignty. And the basic notion there, if you're new to the show and haven't heard that term, is that we're not anarchists and we're not radical libertarians. We believe that God has established spheres of authority. So a husband has a measure of limited authority over his wife. He doesn't have absolute authority, but he has limited authority over his wife. Parents have limited authority over their children. Elders have limited authority over their churches. And the civil government has limited authority over citizens. And we're, we're good with that. We are concerned, however, when any sphere of authority transgresses the God-given authority that God has given to it. So if a husband tyrannizes his wife or parents tyrannize their children or a pastor tyrannizes his church, or as I believe we've seen in the last three years, a government tyrannizes its people, we can put up our hand and say, um, yeah, this this isn't the way it works, and we can push back. So we've had to do that. But what I thought would be interesting is to just help our people. I, I would I would probably consider myself a very elementary lay lawyer. Like my knowledge of the law is, you know, just very basic, just sort of on a lay level. But I wanted to bring a professional lawyer onto leadership now so we could discuss some issues pertaining to constitutional law and and just talk about some of the practical issues that we're facing uh, here in Canada. So the purpose is to increase people's knowledge about how law works, maybe to dispel some myths that people have bought into. And the purpose of doing this is just to help us to to live well within the the, the context that we find ourselves and to also... um, be able to identify perhaps areas of law in our own country where there's weaknesses and to, and to seek to bring about reform. So I'd like to welcome to the program Marty Moore. Uh, Marty is a constitutional litigator with the Justice Center. Uh, you can Google his name because he's been involved in a, a few high-profile cases. He served as counsel for the Fraser Valley churches in British uh, Columbia and their fight against the, the COVID-era tyranny. 
He also stood up against the prohibition against outdoor gatherings exceeding 10 people in Saskatchewan. I was talking to him just before the program and he said, you know, he's, he's basically served from Newfoundland to British Columbia because he's dealing with constitutional issues. And I'm, again, I'm especially grateful that he's working with the Justice Center because I'm thankful for their, um, you know, work on my behalf and in, in representing me in, in the court. So Marty, thanks for joining our program. We're looking forward to having a good chat with you today. Thank you very much, Pastor Rock. It's a privilege to be with you and to join your audience as well. Thank you. Very good. So, Mr. Moore, um, we, we've already mentioned to our listeners that you work with the Justice Center, uh, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which concerns itself primarily with constitutional law. Now, there's different kinds of law, if you will, uh, in, in Canada, different types of law. We have municipal laws and criminal laws, et cetera. Maybe, maybe it would be helpful just as a, an, an intro for for you just to take a few minutes to to help our listeners understand the place that constitutional law plays in our country. In other words, why why is it so so important for us to have an understanding of constitutional law and to defend it in light of all the culture wars and issues that we're experiencing in Canada? And by the way, if you're tuning in from the UK or the US, we want to remind you, don't tune out. This show is is going to deal with some legal matters in Canada, but I but I always think it's a good idea in, in the Western world to pay attention to what is going on in other Western nations, because what's going on there could easily take place in your country or vice versa. So hopefully that that will keep our uh, international audience informed. But anyway, could you maybe help help us to understand a little bit more about constitutional law and the role it plays in Canada? Absolutely. Well, constitutional law is the highest law of the land. And so uh, there's many other laws that you've mentioned, laws that might deal with, you know, the division of property on a family breakup or, or laws for transferring real estate or, or the criminal laws. But constitutional law is what sets out the order, both of the government's powers, provincial and federal, and also sets out the rights of the citizens that the government itself can't transgress. So the government, while the government technically through the legislatures and the executive has the power to enact and, and enforce laws, the government itself is subject to constitutional law. So, I mean, uh, being actually a trained U.S. lawyer as well as a, a Canadian lawyer, uh, we share that in common. We share this view that the government, including the very highest executives, are not above the law but are subject to it. And so that's the role that constitutional law plays. When you're dealing with the government, the constitution is what sets those parameters. Which government has what authority to do what in your life and what are the boundaries that that government is not permitted to cross? All right. Yeah, that's good. I I, I appreciate you reminding us of that because one, you know, one of the concerns we've had is it, it seems... And we can maybe pick up on this theme a little bit later, but it seems that the 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 state represented in the government, uh, fun at least functionally, sees itself as almost above the constitution, or the constitution is somehow beneath it. They can usurp it, and that, and that's one of the things that I think a lot of people like me have a concern with: sort of the rise of what I would call totalitarian statism. 
where individuals or partisan groups, whatever party happens to be in power provincially or or federally sort of pushes it aside and just does what they want. Now, obviously, uh, there's disagreement in our country as to to what degree they are obeying, abiding by the constitutional laws or dismissing them and the necessity of overriding um, you know, some of our fundamental freedoms in light of the pandemic, et cetera. But before we um, before we, we get into some of that, maybe just in broad strokes, you're you're pretty much every day, I assume, in, engaged in um, legal fights and battles pertaining to constitutional issues. Aside from the pandemic and the lockdown, what are some of the major constitutional issues that lawyers like yourself are are current currently dealing with? In Canada, we know there's a lot of discussion about lockdowns. What are some of the other attacks and on freedoms and liberties that um, people like yourself are are starting to see uh, come onto the scene? Yeah, well, and I mean, your point earlier about you know whether or not our constitutional rights are are you know kind of being viewed as by government as dispensable uh, across the board. I think societally. We have seen a degrading of constitutional uh, value and, and value for what our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms calls the fundamental freedoms. And those are, you know, probably well known to your guests, freedom of religion and conscience, right. freedom of uh, thoughtful opinion, belief, expression, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of peaceful assembly and freedom of association. And those rights uh, have been under attack in Canada for, you know, longer than uh, uh, the COVID pandemic, certainly. And there continue to be challenges to them unrelated to COVID, although certainly the COVID situation will affect them as well. And so, you know, if we, we start with perhaps religious freedom, I think, you know, you as a pastor probably are aware of many places at where you sense both societally and legally that there's been a push to move religion out of the public square, if we could use that general terminology. And, and that is a violation of the duty of neutrality that governments have toward people of faith and people of non-faith. Um, but increasingly in Canada, we see, for example, uh, a situation we're involved in with the city of New Westminster, where they found out that a church was going to hold a youth conference. And then an allegation came in that that would be a hateful event. This, uh-huh. this, this term hateful, you know, just based on a poster, actually, just oh, based on a poster and the city canceled the event outright. And so we are continuing to engage in litigation against that city, which on zero evidentiary basis continues to justify the idea that a church to hold a youth conference cannot use municipal property to do uh, that. Right. Um, you know, in Ontario, uh, one of my early cases actually was in the Hamilton area where a foster family had their children removed from them, essentially on the basis of their religious beliefs. Uh, it was a very bizarre case that involved the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus as, as some sort of <laughs> secular beliefs the Children's Aid Society was foisting onto this family. And, and, and the end result was a was a terrible intrusion into the lives of two young children that were being cared for lovingly by this foster family. But the court rectified that uh, in a judgment. But 
But we continue to see, for example, even in Ontario in some of the situations that we're working on, uh, where foster parents or people applying to adopt are being scrutinized and excluded from serving the most vulnerable among us simply on the basis that the beliefs that they hold to, the traditional religious beliefs that they hold to, are not acceptable to these government actors and, and scrutinizers in the social work industry. And so these are things that need to be pushed back on. Uh, otherwise, again, this, this march forward with complete disregard for the freedom of Canadians to conscience and, and religious belief uh, will, will literally uh, eviscerate public expression and even private uh, belief from any participation in the public square. So that's religious freedom. I, I think there's other situations, uh, you know, I could go into, for example, the the Bill C-4 passage that happened uh, almost without any consideration. Our, uh, we had uh, people show up at the House of Commons and in the committees, and then it was passed on unanimous consent, this amendment to the criminal code that deems just essentially the affirmation of one's biological sex right. as conversion therapy, uh, uh, trying to loop in essentially the traditional views of all faiths and essentially people of common sense for the last few thousand years or since time immemorial as some sort of discredited, dangerous practice and punishing even the promotion of quote-unquote conversion therapy with, with criminal time up to two years in prison. Uh, and, and as a pastor and a, you know someone working with people who would come to you for, say, uh, assistance dealing with a, with a sexual addiction, if that person happens to be gay rather than straight, well, you could be charged with engaging in conversion therapy for sharing the teachings of your faith with that individual and risking five years in prison. That is a looming threat to people of all faiths, and, and even people of no faith, but people with a, a, a belief system based in medical and scientific biological fact. Um, recently, there's another situation at the Ontario Court of Appeal. Uh, it's actually a case involving uh, a rather notorious individual in Canada, Bill Watcott, uh, who's been charged under hate speech laws. Uh, in this particular case, he was acquitted of, in, of the allegation and the charge that he engaged in hate by participating as a quote-unquote green zombie in the Toronto Pride Parade in 2016. Okay. The Ontario government has appealed that now to the Court of Appeal in Ontario. And, and we represent a group that is uh, actually composed of Canadians of many different uh, walks uh, and different uh, Christian faiths, but but some of them experience same-sex attraction and struggles in their gender identity, and so they can come at this from a very personal experience. But the, they are concerned with the government of Ontario's argument in the court that is equating uh, two very different things. They are saying that to advocate against, in this case, gay sex, is the equivalent of advocating for the extermination of all gay people. Right. Which yeah. is an absolutely horrendous argument if taken to its extreme. That would mean that advocating against baptism by immersion 
would equate to advocating for the eradication of all Baptists. Right. And, and these kinds of, of uh, conflations are incredibly dangerous when we're dealing with the criminal law of Canada. But that is what the Ontario government is doing. So actually, on August, uh, sorry, June 21st, we'll be in the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, providing arguments of, on behalf of this uh, organization, Free to Care, which is a saying, <laughs> we are... Uh, Canadians, including Canadians that experience same-sex attraction, we hold to religious beliefs, which would say we do not uh, support or condone or engage in gay sex. How is that in some way conflating our position with an erratic, an argument that we ourselves should be eradicated? Uh, just the, the confluence and the craziness of, of the legal positions being taken in some of our courts can be exposed just by the fact that certain people exist and they exist with the differentiation that our uh, broad brush identity politics uh, does not recognize it, particularly when it comes to court. And so that uh, whole area of hate speech laws and the subjectivity around that, again, punishable by both criminal law and human rights codes is, a, is an area of danger and concern when it comes to religious freedoms. And so not an exhaustive list. I could sure. go on for quite a quite a long time, Pastor Rock. But maybe I'll I'll switch just into one more area, uh, and that would be freedom of expression, which is the second fundamental freedom. Uh, of course, in Canada we have freedom of thought, opinion, belief, and expression, which is important to note. It's nice to think before you speak, and I think that's a that's a good order that the the Canadian Constitution has it in. But in Canada, we're, we're seeing an increasing uh, pressure on really anyone who would contradict uh, empowered narratives, if I could use that term, whether it's on COVID, whether it's on uh, family or issues of sexuality or even, you know, basic issues such as biological facts of both uh, male and female. Uh, uh, yeah, essentially just anatomy and the existence of a dichotomy there. Um, so we represent, you know, obviously a number of, of medical professionals who've been charged with quote unquote misinformation for just simply raising questions about different issues, whether it's the effectiveness of lockdowns or the ability for people to provide informed consent to a novel medical treatments. Um, but also, for example, in, in British Columbia, we're in the middle of a, a discipline hearing for a nurse who's been charged uh, and is at risk of losing her license essentially for for supporting sex-based rights for women. The idea that there exists a difference between male and female. Of course, she's a nurse, so there's a biological reality there. She ended up, uh, the trigger point for her was she put up a billboard that said, I, I love J.K. Rowling, which regardless of one's position that's protected by freedom of expression, she got a, a slew of complaints and now has been facing more than a year of hearings to lose her license. Again, this pushing out from the public square anyone who would contradict the public narrative. And, and at issue in that case, uh, expert witnesses debating whether or not male and female are relevant categories in a medical profession. I mean, I, the, the expert for the BC College of Nurses uh, literally saying, I do not like the categories of male and female, despite the fact that, I mean, my mother's a nurse, my sister's a nurse, M and F are on almost all of your charts. They're they're on your airplane tickets, which, I, but uh, we're we're dealing with with such 
such issues, which which expand, you know, practically right into the classroom. And there in Ontario, I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of this this censorious um, foothold that has taken hold of many school boards. These are public school boards that are required by law to have public school board meetings, and yet we're seeing these uh, these meetings being uh, governed by <laughs> little dictators, really. Shutting so, off microphones, not responding exactly. to parents' questions. Yeah. 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 Kicking elected representatives out of public school board meetings, prohibiting them from participating in committees that they were elected to participate in. So we're representing a number of individuals, parents, trustees, teachers, who've been censored for that. We've got uh, a couple going to court uh, Carolyn Burjowski, that Toronto teacher that got her mic cut off simply for raising concerns about very concerning material in the school. And then, of course, uh, Mike Ramsey, a school board trustee whose crime was simply uh, raising the right of constituents, including teachers, to raise concerns in a public school board meeting. Uh, they censured him as well. And so pushing back against that, um, maybe I'll just speed through a couple things. Of course, the right to peaceful assembly or the right to protest, very fundamental right in Canada, uh, that's under attack really in an unparalleled way in any Western country. Uh, the Emergencies Act case, of course, went to court uh, in April. Our lawyers there were focused on this idea that federal government can freeze the bank accounts of people engaging in protests or even people supporting those engaged in protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply because they don't like the content of the protest. The most draconian of all uh, measures, really, when you're not simply uh, saying you're not allowed to protest here, but literally saying we are going to destroy your financial existence in this country. And of course, once you're now this new term that we've used or, you know, has been foisted upon us, debanked, uh, you can't even live in society, let alone participate in the public square. Um there's also a massive class action that uh, was brought against not only the participants in the Freedom Convoy, but also the donors to the Freedom Convoy, seeking $300 million in damages. Uh, if that class action, which is a court-authorized case, if that is allowed to proceed against thousands of peaceful and peace-loving Canadians. Yeah, we had uh, a police was, officer. We had a police officer in our own city who was put on leave without pay. He's not being paid by the Windsor Police Services. During that time, he donated 50 bucks to the convoy and went through a big tribunal and, and lost here in Windsor. It's like you're, the whole idea was, well, you're still sort of beholden to us as a police service. So even though you're not getting paid, and even though we've tossed you out of our day-to-day employment because you won't get the shot, you're a very bad man for donating 50 bucks to the Freedom Convoy. And it, it's really a shame where you have people that are p- pushed into a corner. You, you can't work. You can't apply for uh, employment insurance. You can't donate to someone who disagrees with the government narrative. And if you do, if you don't sit down and shut up, you know we're going to come after you uh, with, all, with all sorts of penalties. And it, it's really, you know, initially, Marty, when I was resisting uh, government tyranny, it was fundamentally because of my belief that the the, gov- the government doesn't have authority over the ministry and worship of the Christian church, that we are Christ's embassy. But then, of course, you start to see the tyranny more broadly, and yet you, f- you feel compelled to speak 
out for those that are barred from leaving their country, barred from seeking gainful employment, barred from visiting their their um, dying family members, barred from having weddings, these sorts of things. Yeah. So lots yeah, of that I, taking place. Absolutely. And I obviously taking a very careful look at that Windsor situation with the police officer who's now been essentially forced to work for free. Yes. Uh, for the cause of, of peacefully of donating to a peaceful protest. Uh, certainly those are the kinds of situations where uh, the freedom of expression is being jeopardized and must be uh, defended. Uh, I, you know, you reference, for example, the situation of people being denied EI, the very basic sustenance that they themselves have paid for if their own insurance premiums through prior work. Uh, we are now at the Federal Court of Appeal challenging that particular issue, which was, you know, essentially a, a government-wide edict that went out through the Minister, Minister Qualtrough. Um, but, yeah, all of these uh, concerns, including some related to COVID and then just generally free speech, is still, uh, you know, a crisis. The Justice Centre was, was founded, you know, 2010. Uh, originally, a lot of the fights that we had were on university campuses where these totalitarian tendencies kind of early reared their head. And so you saw, for example, a controversial group. If it's a pro-life group, oh, we can't have them expressing their views on campus. And so the Justice Center took a number of those cases and in Alberta actually established a strong precedent showing that there is constitutional protection uh, for student expression on campus. Uh, we are continuing to act for students across the country and now also university professors and others whose rights to freedom of expression are being violated simply because the university views their uh, proposed expression as controversial in some way. So again, you know, universities receiving hundreds of millions of dollars of government funding every year, really created by government for government purposes, and yet, uh, and, and raising up the next generation of Canadian leaders uh, being these, you know, situ places where uh, censorship cannot be allowed to reign supreme, in my view. And I probably go on for a number of, of hours, really, sure. with you to talk about threats to freedom, but maybe we'll we'll stop there at the first two or three fundamental freedoms. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you mentioning those. It's very practical. I think all of those issues have impacted or are impacting members of our own church and our own community. We've had um, numerous families in our church uh, apply to be foster parents or try to go through the adoption process and find it very frustrating. You almost have to pretend you're not a Christian, you know, to get through it. And some being told straight up, if you can't affirm whatever the latest ideology is, LGBTQ, I'm sorry, but we can't put a kid in your care. You're you're not a trustworthy individual. Um, you mentioned Bill C-4. We've mentioned this time and time again. One of the most concerning things about Bill C-4, which I would argue is actually a religious bill, is that it declares essentially that heterosexual normalcy is a myth, which is to, to effectively mythologize the teachings of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, to say it's a, it's a myth to believe that God created people male and female. There's also the, the concern... And I'm curious what your your thoughts are on this. We have these these terms thrown around. So we hear a lot about hate speech. Well, hate hate can have a an outward manifestation. If you're obviously clobbering someone over the head with a weapon, or you are 
jumping on someone or you're stabbing someone, it, chances are you're motivated by some sort of hate for that person and you should be you know, arrested and fined. But hate in, in, in and of itself is an emotion. It's, it's, I, I don't really have a, a, a way or a means of climbing inside of your heart and your mind and saying, Marty, you're, you're a very hateful person towards this other individual. In other words, it, it's kind of a slippery, hard to define, hard to quantify it, certainly in, 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 in any legal sense, what it means to even hate something else. And I, 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 I'm personally offended when I might preach a passage from Scripture which may condemn a certain sexual activity and automatically, oh, you're guilty of hate speech. Well, what do you mean by that? I'm not I'm not abusing anyone. I'm not as assaulting anyone. So I'm curious, does does the word hate speech or hate itself have any standardized definition in Canadian law? Is it actually a word with any substance to it? Is there any legal clout behind it? Or is it more or less just whatever you want to make it in the moment? No, that's a very good question. And and currently in our society, the term hate is used, you know, and ascribed to anyone uh, whose speech you hate and you call them a hateful person. Um, so basically, if you law, hate what they're saying, you're guilty of hate speech. Well, that is how it's being used and being used as a weapon. A hate speech is being used as a weapon in that sense. But actually, when you go to court, the definition of hate speech, which, you know, as an entire category, uh, if you're into uh, the view of fundamental freedoms being rights that should be protected, hate speech as a category is a dangerous thing. That said, I Canadian agree. courts have allowed it to stand, but they have attempted to put up uh, as many objective parameters around that term as might be utilized given the, the almost the inherent subjectivity of the term, as you've mentioned, you know, the nature of an emotion of hate, how do you capture that? And so they, they, they view it as speech that is objectively likely to lead to vilification and detestation. And then they go into ascribing definitions to those terms and, you know, the early case law was very clear to say you can talk about and malicious, like very vigorously attack activities without being hateful against groups that engage in those activities. That was a very clear line in the jurisprudence. And now, like I mentioned, we see governments and lawyers trying to expand the definition of hate to be essentially, you know, anything that those governments and lawyers hate. Um, and so, yes, it's a it's a definition that has been adopted into law. It is a very stringent test to actually meet the definition of hate on a legal basis. But we see it being utilized uh, by governments and others, uh, politicians, etc., uh, and and the media by and large as well, in a in a fashion that is completely untethered to the legal restraints that would be on that term. Yeah, I think I, I've seen that too. Just it, It's just a word that's thrown out there whenever someone generally of an anti-Christian or anti-liberty perspective disagrees with you, suddenly you're, you're a hater. And it's it's a word that that stirs emotions and, and also a word that I think has been abused by some of our opponents. I wanted to, I wanted to chat a little bit about and I understand you're a lawyer and we want to be respectful of um, our judges and our judicial system. 
in our country. So, you know, feel free to comment on this to the degree that you feel comfortable given your your position. But just just to give you an example of this, I want to talk a little bit about ideological bent in in our justice system and maybe what we're seeing there. So I remember, if I remember correctly, I could look it up. There was a point during the pandemic when the 50, I think we have 50 some odd federal judges in our country, if I'm not mistaken, all came out and revealed, hey, everybody, we're vaccinated. And I thought that was the weirdest thing. Why, why would the federal judges come out and reveal a, a common medical treatment that they have uh, gone through. I mean, this is, uh, it would be super weird if they all came out and said, everybody, we're diabetics, or hey, everybody, we just had heart surgery, or hey, everybody, we just took a Tylenol. But they all wanted to to proclaim their vaccination status. My immediate thought is, man, in the future, there could be people who are standing before them in court who perhaps were injured through experiencing a vaccine injury or, or exposing something in the pharmaceutical industry or whatever it might be. In other words, chances are there'll be some vaccinated related case that makes into the courts at some point in time. And I thought it was really odd that they seem to have this desire to, to signal to the, the public that they had basically, I would, I would just say it this way, complied with or maybe even agreed with or gone along with the narrative of the executive branch of government. I'm not commenting in this show on the efficacy of vaccinations. I just thought it was a very odd thing to do. And it made, it got me thinking about ideological biases and just wondering what you think about that. I, I have an opinion on it, but I'm wondering what you think as a lawyer, how, how much how much bias should we expect, if any, in your opinion, in our courts as we bring cases before them? How much confidence can we have that there's objectivity there versus maybe a lot of ideological pollution? And second to that, historically in, in Western countries like Canada, we have this, you know, the kind of the three branches of government. We have the the judiciary, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and they, they work together, but they're supposed to be there's supposed to be a separation of powers. And I, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering, do we actually have that? Or are the ideological opinions or the, you know, the latest and greatest ideological bent of the executive branch really affecting the, the judicial branch of government to a greater degree than maybe is healthy for our country? So I've said a lot there. Again, uh, we want to be respectful. We're not anarchists in our show and in our, in our opinion, but what are your thoughts on the influence of various ideologies, government ideologies upon our uh, judicial system? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I, I would just start the answer by recognizing the obvious fact that every judge is a person and a person who's had an educational uh, upbringing and, and, and a participation in society and, and is you know receiving many of the same messages that the general public is receiving, whether it's through the media or otherwise. And so you know, I would start with the concept of, of you know, is there a dominant ideology that is, you know, affecting Canadian legal thought? And, and I would say absolutely. Uh, our law schools are a homogenous ideological uh, whole. Uh, you might recall that there was the view to have some ideological diversity or at least the possibility of ideological diversity instituted through the use of uh, of Trinity Western's law school in British Columbia that was shut down um, 
And I, I remember being in the University of Saskatchewan College of Law at that point, and every single me- member of the, the legal community there at the law school, uh, with, with some very few exceptions, were signing on to letters decrying the terrible abuse that another law school uh, founded by, you know, at least a Christian in name university would have on Canadian society. And it was, it was a bizarre ideological cohesion. And even in classroom discussions, you realize that, you know, people would be triggered even by the thought of ideological diversity in the classroom. I remember our professional uh, ethics professor put a picture of a sitting MP from Saskatchewan on the screen in the law school classroom. And a, a, a mature student, so a, a woman in her 50s going through law school, stood up and screamed at the screen and demanded that the picture of this sitting MP be taken down because that sitting MP happens to be pro-life. Wow. wow. And so, you know, you recognize that that the, the nature of the educational upbringing and our society's tolerance for different things is certainly going to affect people. And, and why should we think that judges aren't affected by that? Uh, again, I, you know, also recognize, for example, in the United States, uh, there, you'll see a wide variety of different law schools and also a wide variety of different schools of thought, whether it's originalism from a constitutional perspective or a more, uh, progressive, uh, you know, pragmatist view of the Constitution, a utilitarian view. And that is, it's right. There's lots of constitutional debate. There's, you know, organizations like the Federalist Society and, and other different organizations. There is some of that in Canada, but it, it's a, it's a incredibly, an incredible minority, uh, perspective or, or for there to be, you know, an organization of lawyers that is dedicated to, the individual liberties and freedoms, that's something you, you see much more rarely in Canada. And so that is the pool from which judges are selected. Uh, can you say that they're not going to be affected by that? I don't think you can. That certainly doesn't paint all judges with, with the same brush, and that would be inappropriate to do. But I think we have to recognize that our culture and our educational climate certainly will have an effect downstream of that as well. And maybe to dive just a little bit into, you know, for example, the COVID situation. And I, you know, would encourage uh, your listeners to look up an article and I could send it to you, for example, where I believe it was the Lawyers Daily uh, questioned both the Chief Justice of Canada, Justice Wagner, and uh, the Chief Justice of the Federal Court of Appeal on this issue of the vaccination status. And there were two very different responses. And, And this isn't unique to those particular courts because really all courts across the country had similar questions and provided almost to a, to a judge, uh, you know, the confirmation that yes, we have adopted all these safety, you know, quote unquote COVID safety protocols, including mandatory vaccinations for our staff and all of our judges are vaccinated or, you know, or if they're not, they're not hearing cases. You heard two different responses. Uh, one from the chief justice of Canada, which affirmed, yes, all nine judges of our Supreme Court of Canada are vaccinated, etc. And then the, the insight uh, to be gained is from uh, the Chief Justice of the Federal Court of Appeal, who literally said your exact concern. I will not be disclosing the medical condition of my judges. We will be asked to hear, and of course, 
the Justice Center and many lawyers funded by the Justice Center have cases now before the Federal Court of Appeal, including, you know, the denial of unvaccinated people's ability to get EI. Uh, the Court of Appeal Chief Justice said, I won't be disclosing that because that would lead to a perception of bias. Obviously. And that was <laughs> yeah. the court's own response to that question. I, I think it's very insightful. And, and you know, just on another practical level, because it's too obvious to ignore, the courts across this country, in reaction to COVID, in reaction to, no doubt, the news that they were hearing and, and the different statements that were coming from public health officers, they locked down their facilities. They imposed mask mandates harder and longer than almost any other setting in the country. They imposed gathering restrictions themselves, and they imposed vaccine requirements on their own staff. Those are, in my respectful view, very disturbing and uh, unwarranted actions that the court itself engaged in. And, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, courts can't learn from mistakes, just like governments and people can't learn from their mistakes. Uh, but I absolutely think that there is a very real concern that the courts themselves need to look in the mirror and make sure that they are actively checking their own biases whether it's from their own actions or from their own education at the door when they're hearing cases. And I mean, that, that goes for, for anyone in public office and, in, and even a lawyer arguing cases. But uh, it, it's not something that should be and can be ignored. And then to comment on your, your other question regarding the separation of powers and whether or not we have a functional separation of powers in Canada. A very excellent question. And, I, and again, a question that is very pertinent uh, to the work that I do, because, of course, uh, you know, there's there's a few different things. One is, of course, the legislatures are empowered to make the laws. The elected legislatures are empowered to make the laws. That is the constitutional structure of Canada, whether that's the parliament or the legislatures of the different provinces. The executive, the premier and the cabinet and the, the subordinate deputies and uh, bureaucrats are there to enact, uh, adopt, implement these laws, I should say, implementation. And the courts are there to ensure that that process is followed, the dichotomy between the legislature and the executive is followed, but they're also there under the constitution that we have to ensure that neither the legislature nor the executive branches go beyond the constitutional boundaries established by our rights and freedoms. And yet what we've seen, particularly heightened during COVID, is the legislatures relinquishing all control right, and refusing to take any control back. Effect, effectively, yeah, functionally, effectively, there was a lengthy period of time where, where the executive branch seemed to be open and doing business and the judiciary and the legislative branches of government were, were closed. So under emergency orders and various emergency powers, depending on the province you're in, one of our frustrations here in Ontario is that our elected officials weren't, weren't meeting at Queen's Park. Our premier was just making decisions 
you couldn't get anything into the courts because the courts were closed because there's a pandemic. And this is where, I mean, I know they would they would bristle at this language, but this is where the idea of the, the language of tyranny started to come forward increasingly in the public rhetoric because you felt, man, we're being governed by one or two or five people here. And, and, and then to cover their own butts, the executive are constantly referencing the technocrats. Well, the experts told us this, the experts told us that. So it, be, it became a very, a very frustrating process, I think, for people that were paying attention to what was going on. Yeah, and, and rightfully so, because democracy requires that separation of powers, in my view. And when the legislature says, hey, go ahead, we'll, we'll give you a public health act, and then random health officials throughout the country are dictating the minute details of citizens' lives, um, that's a violation of that separation of powers. And then furthermore, when the, the legal system, and this is really, really goes to the stance, and I, I, again, I don't want to paint every court with the broad brush. I have spoken to judges in courtrooms where they are incredibly grateful to be provided with the opportunity to uphold their duty as judges, which is to ensure that the citizens' rights are not unjustifiably infringed. Some courts are very much taking that duty seriously, but we've seen in many, many, if not most cases, the courts, and even in their public statements, rallying around, rather than societies and citizens' freedom, saying we must protect the institutions of society, and are there referencing essentially government institutions and, and really protecting the bureaucrats and the executives that operate in those institutions, which is absolutely not the role of the court. The role of the court is to ensure that the functioning of a democracy is upheld per the Constitution and the law, and that the fundamental rights and freedoms of citizens are not transgressed in that. And so, yes, the 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 necessary and the established through constitutional doctrines and principles and documents has been transgressed in my view and there needs to be a reassertion by the legislature of its role in making any laws that that govern and affect its citizens and not relinquishing that to the executives or the technocrats as you mentioned and there needs to be a reassertion by the court of its role not to uh, step in and try to understand uh, how a particular politician may have been fearful or not of a particular uh, transmissible disease, but rather to step in and say, have you met the legal tests for demonstrable justification in these circumstances? Because that is what I, the court, have to apply. And so, you know, we are certainly needing to see a reassertion of the legal system as a whole and, and our elected leaders as well of their duties in our, you know, tripartite system of government and, and oversight. How much confidence do you think Canadians should have that our freedoms won't disappear? Um, and, and what can we do to maybe make it more difficult for governments to revoke freedoms, um, you know, based on public emergencies? We, we went through the pandemic there's increasing rhetoric about climate crises. I mean, the same logic could easily be applied to climate crises. You know, stay home, stay safe, two weeks to reduce carbon, 
um, stay home, stay safe, work from home, don't travel, don't go to church, it's not essential, your job's not essential, this person's job is. I mean, all the same logic could be used. You're, you're causing the healthcare, there's gonna be a healthcare crisis if we don't deal with the carbon issue. All of the same logic that was applied to the pandemic could easily be applied to something like a climate crisis lockdown, whether that'll happen or not, who knows. But but what what confidence do you think Canadians should have that their freedoms won't entirely disappear? Yeah. Well, I think that's a question that we can ask each of ourselves in the mirror because it does require, in my view, a, a citizen-wide commitment not to let your freedoms be irrevocably removed. And of course, we all know the, you know, the, the maxim that freedom is not free, that you do need to uh, maintain uh, the fight for freedom through the courts, through your elected legislatures, but also just through the public conversation. And, you know, we've, we've heard precious little through mainstream sources about the value of, and importance of freedom for me and for you. Uh, through the mainstream, but there's been many people engaging in alternative sources, even, for example, your podcast and this conversation that we're having right now. And and so will we commit to not abandoning the fight for freedom? Because my confidence in whether or not Canada will retain and regain its freedoms is directly proportional to my confidence in whether or not Canadians will continue the fight for freedom. And that's, that's a good word. That's really uh, kind of where I land on that. That's a, that's a good word because I know that's a really good word because I know along the way, what, little old me, when I was fighting my little fight here in, in Windsor, you'd have, every once in a while you'd meet people and you'd say, you know what, I'm not, I, I, I love what you're doing. I just couldn't do it myself. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> if, you, if you throw me out in the wind, you know, I, I'm likely to just get swatted aside. But if if large numbers of people stand up within the church and outside of the church and assert that there are God-given rights that shouldn't be revoked by the state, numbers matter. I remember early on we had the uh, Ontario um, reopening Ontario churches letter that went out, and we we thought, man, if we could get like 30 churches to sign this, this would just look better than having two or three. So. Um, we kind of put a campaign together. At the end of the day, we had 445 churches and synagogues sign that letter just in Ontario, and that got us an immediate audience with the premier's office, with the with the um, assistant attorney general here in Ontario, and we basically, in a kind way, said, "Open our churches by Monday, or we're opening them." And on Monday, we got our churches opened up. So that just showed me early on that there's power in numbers, and. If the people don't speak, well, the technocrats are going to do a lot of talking, and then that's going to influence the executive branch, and and the laws are going to be tossed aside or rewritten. Well, I want to I want to also just ask a couple practical questions. So, I'm I'm I guess you could say a prof, a professional pastor, professional theologian. Now, what I mean by that, I don't like the word professional applied to. To, to pastoral ministry. But what I mean by that is I, I do this full time. I have for 30 years, I have several degrees. So I, I know, you know, a fair bit about the Bible and theology and whatnot. And there's other people in our church 
that have areas of expertise that I don't. There's there's engineers, there are nurses. I might know a little bit about engineering, but I'm not a professional engineer. I might know a little bit about the law, but I'm not a professional lawyer. And so I, I say all that to illustrate the fact that when it, when it comes to law, what I've noticed in in the last couple of years is there's suddenly a lot of lay lawyers um, floating around. And I'm not I'm not opposed to people studying the law and researching the law any more than I am opposed to people studying and researching and growing in their understanding of the scriptures. This is a good thing. But I, I'm concerned about a couple of the arguments that um, people have put forward that they they see maybe as, as slam dunk. And I just want to get you to comment on a couple of them. One would be, we all know that in our uh, our charter, we have the justification clause. Is that the correct language for that? Yeah, it's section one of the charter, yeah. and it allows for governments to justify, uh, you know, the violation of freedoms if it's demonstrable, reasonable, and uh, right. supportable. And, and, and that's free been and, democratic and that's been on everyone's radar. That's a huge issue because we're all like, yeah. oh, we've seen that, we've read that, but my oh my, we never thought it'd be used this way. So many people have said, well, then let's let's put the charter aside and let's go way back to the Bill of Rights. So one of the arguments I've heard is that the Bill of Rights is kind of the precursor to the charter. It's it's more ironclad. It's more watertight. It doesn't have a clause like that in it. It just says these are our rights. And one of the arguments that I've heard people say is that's never been officially revoked. So while the charter, when the charter came into to existence in 81, uh, that, or when it was signed in 81, that it, it didn't, it doesn't mean the Bill of Rights was thrown out. So why don't we go to court and just say, look, we still have the Bill of Rights on the books. We still have the Bill of Rights as a, a recognized document in, in Canadian law. Why can't we just appeal to that to uphold our fundamental freedoms without worrying about the, the, the justification clause? And then I, when I've said, I've asked uh, at least, I recall having a conversation about this with at least one other lawyer, and uh, I can't recall his his exact language, but he basically said, you know, it's maybe not as useful as you think. And then going back to some of the um, you know pro Bill of Rights folks that I know, their their argument has been, well, anybody who was educated in the law schools of Canada after 1981 has basically been duped into thinking the Bill of Rights is is irrelevant, but it's actually still relevant. So. Could you comment on that? Is the Bill of Rights still useful in our fight for liberty in Canada? Does it have any legal weight? And and is it uh, uh, is it actually the watertight our, uh, document that we need to appeal to in order to win some of these cases in court? Yeah. Good question, and it's certainly come up a lot uh, with with many people grasping for for some answers and some solutions to what we've seen is you know as we talked about uh, some abdications of of the otherwise canadian protections for our fundamental freedoms and you know to define the terms a little bit of course i went to law school initially in the united states where the bill of rights is of course the description of the first 10 amendments to the u.s constitution in canada uh you need to define the term a little further as well because for example, uh, Alberta has its own Bill of Rights, which is a particular document. Maybe we won't get into that. But then there is a Bill of Rights document, which I believe you're referring to, and probably your audience would be familiar with this reference, is the Bill of Rights of Canada, which was adopted during the years of Diefenbaker. Right. And uh, just a, couple, a context for this is important, okay? 
So constitutionally in Canada, the federal government has a limited jurisdiction and the provinces has a much broader jurisdiction. And so the issues of health and safety, property and civil rights, all of those fall under the jurisdiction of the provinces. And then the federal government has the criminal law power and some other uh, more limited powers. Of course, we've seen the federal government expand its reach quite a bit. But that's important to keep in mind because the Bill of Rights of Canada is a, is a piece of legislation. It's not a constitutional document. It's a piece of legislation passed by Parliament in which it says, we believe that these are values, these are rights in Canada, and that laws should comply federal laws. It says the laws of Canada, which again, in the context of the legislation, can only apply to the laws of the federal government. I see. And so what you'll often hear, for example, is, oh, you know, when you get ticketed for breaching a public health order, don't plead the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, plead the Bill of Rights. But of course, the first thing the court is going to ask you when you do that is saying, well, do you mean the Bill of Rights that applies to federal legislation because you've been charged for breaching a provincial health order to which that Bill of Rights does not apply? I see. And and so uh, and also for context, while you know one of the one of the draws of the Bill of Rights is it doesn't have this Section One clause. It doesn't have a clause that says, um, you know, the violation of your freedoms can be justified, it, you know, as, as reasonable upon evidence. And, and so people say, well, that makes it stronger. And, and so there is an application for it in regard to some federal laws and rules. Um, the trouble is, is the case law around the Bill of Rights is quite weak. There have been about 35 different challenges to federal legislation on behalf of the bill, on, on the basis of the Bill of Rights. Only one was successful. And a lot of the courts uh, took the view that either the Bill of Rights provisions should be very narrowly construed or that the Bill of Rights was simply an interpretive aid, not being a constitutional strength, but an interpretive aid. And then largely in more recent times, both the Alberta Bill of Rights and the Federal Bill of Rights is being what's called subsumed underneath an analysis of the Canadian Constitution. Because while the Bill of Rights is, is a you know federal piece of legislation, and it doesn't have a Section 1 you know, justification clause for government to get out on. Uh, it doesn't also have a supremacy clause, which is what our Constitution has. Uh, and of course, the supremacy clause is what makes the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms binding on not only the federal government, but also the provincial governments. And while, in my view, the, the current uh, decisions coming out of our courts are not respecting the intent and the interpretation of our fundamental freedoms, and they need to be appealed and challenged. Um, the Canadian Bill of Rights does not apply and is not supreme over, you know, the, the vast majority of laws that affect Canadians, particularly during the COVID crisis. And so um, certainly I understand the, the desire of Canadians to, you know, assert something that would be more powerful than what they're currently receiving by uh, asserting their charter rights. And there are contexts, you know, in challenging federal legislation, for example, in which the Bill of Rights should be inserted. And in Alberta, for example, we also assert the Alberta Bill of Rights before the courts. And then 
the next challenge is getting the court to actually consider that because right now we have courts that are uh, utilizing this doctrine of subsumation saying, okay, well, you, your right of freedom of religion was violated, your right to protest was violated, your right to uh, association was violated, you say, but I'm only going to consider your right to freedom of expression. And you could have a Zoom call, so that's justified. I see. And they just ignore a vast amount of arguments. And and right now we're seeing that courts are even ignoring the Bill of Rights, saying, well, we're only going to consider this one right under you know, the Charter rather than the other rights under the Bill of Rights. Whether And that would apply more specifically in Alberta. And of course, the Canadian Bill of Rights has a more limited application. So I hope that uh, provides some context to, to that particular argument. And of course, uh, you know, to find answers, you know, in Canadian law, precedent to establish your rights, you need to see it in a, a court case and, and be able to bring those cases to the judge. And again, there's only been really one uh, victory under the Alberta Bill of Rights. That would be the Dry Bones case, I believe. Uh, and again, it was dealing with a federal law uh, affecting First Nations people. But uh, uh, good, good thing to research and good thing to consider for sure. Okay, good. That, that's helpful. One other very minor point. So in, in the in the broader freedom movement, we obviously have different worldviews. It's not like everybody at the convoy or everyone that was fighting for freedoms or seeking to keep their churches open was necessarily motivated by the same thing. Again, for me, it has largely to do with my belief in sphere sovereignty and the, the fact that we are pro-authority. We do believe that God has ordained various spheres of authority in society and it's it's not a free for all we are under authority we want to respect the government when it's dually functioning and it's in its proper role and then there are others i would say in the freedom movement that are a bit more i would just call them maybe anarchists or just r radical freedom fighters um and i've i've been hearing a little bit of um discussion about a, a group it's, it's maybe not even a group maybe it's more of a movement or more of a philosophy called the the free men on the land and the, the idea here is understand it is there's this notion that people have asserted that they they're not under authority they're not i, I i'm living on in this territory i'm 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 in this country i i'm i'm not subject to traffic laws i'm not subject to the criminal code i'm i'm a free independent entity and i, I have a i have a buddy who um who's who's a police officer and he said he did pull someone over one day that wouldn't roll down his window he's i'm not rolling down my window i'm not providing insurance i'm not providing my license you have no authority over me have you been hearing about that do you have any do you have any thoughts on on that from a from a from a legal perspective yeah, I mean, I there's there's a number of different uh, theories and and uh, concepts that are often thrown around uh, in courtrooms and 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 there's many people who have a diehard belief in some of these theories, uh, some of which have more of a connection to historical context and roots, some have a very tenuous connection to to those things. Um, but I guess regardless of, you know, diving into the theoretical merits, uh, you know, of these different theories and, and concepts, what I'm chiefly interested in, obviously, as a lawyer and one who advising clients who are obviously interacting with the police and government bodies, is what are the legal 
merits in the Canadian justice system. Because, of course, we know that there is a government in Canada, whether you call it de facto or de jure, and there is a court system. And again, there's, you know, there's all sorts of linguistic rabbit holes that we could dive in right there. And I'll, I'll probably just keep it to the practical effect. You know, what could happen? And, you know, to steel man a case, for example, is, is you will hear of individuals who will come out and say, I, I asserted my, you know, uh, split identity, you know, whether that's, you know, I am the person, not the corporation and, and, you know, do all of these kind of linguistic tricks. And what do you know? The police officer let me go <laughs> and didn't ticket me. Or, you know, I, I said this in court and the next thing I know, the prosecutor dropped the charges. And, you know, there's, so there's these anecdotes and that's, you know, that's the strongest evidence I've found in, in you know, for, for supporting some of these actions. Um, and of course, you know, in law, police have discretion to charge or not to charge. That happens all the time. And whether or not uh, this was related to someone's assertion of a, you know, a, a sovereign citizen identity or free man on the land or, or, or some other uh, theory, uh, or whether or not the prosecutor simply said, well, I, I'm going to drop this because I don't have time to deal with the headache that this particular case would, would cause, whether that's on the basis of the legal theories asserted or not. What you do not find in Canada is any basis in the case law and actual decisions before a judge where these theories gain anything but contempt. And when you're dealing with the courts, uh, the contempt of the court is is something actually that is quite serious. So, you know, there's legal cases where an individual come in and, you know, assert one or more of these concepts or theories. And like a judge in Canada, in a Canadian courtroom, if they hear someone, for example, assert, you know, this this idea that I'm just, you know, I'm not Marty Moore. I'm simply the real person, Marty Moore. And the all caps Marty Moore is a corporate entity that's, you know, created by, you know, this legal fiction over here. Um, and that's the one you're going after. If they hear that, the, they literally are empowered uh, to presume that that individual is acting in bad faith and for a vexatious, abusive, and ulterior purpose. So that's the way the court will treat you. And, and that will have real effects. So you so can assert it all you want, but at the end of the day, you're functioning outside of the system. You're not going to have, you're not going to get any sympathy and it's not going to take you anywhere. Yeah, you'll get the opposite of sympathy. So, you know, an order, a presumption that you're operating in that manner leads to what's called a vexatious litigant designation, which bars you from even going to court now. And, it, you know, in, in some, in many cases, there's been uh, punitive cost measures. So, you know, not only do you have to pay the court, you know, scheduled fees, which might be a few thousand dollars, you might have to pay the other side actual full legal bills, uh, you know, which could, you know, some cases it's tens of thousands of dollars. And there's various people that are pushing these theories. They normally push them and, and you often find out, oh, well, the tax evasion charges didn't drop and now they're in jail or, or et cetera. Um, again, what I'm concerned most about is not so much the theoretical concepts, you know, asserting the common law, which, you know, is a term you hear often, which you know, does exist. There's a historical root to that. But then there's this, this ignoring of all the constitutional documents, the legislation, and the 
case decisions which would affect the common law up to the present point. So it's just a, an area to be considerate of. I think, you know, there, there certainly are people that are espousing theories for the purpose of making money. There's certainly people doing it in good faith because they see a system that's not answering the questions that seem obvious to them in the way that they should be answered in their view. Um, and so, sure. you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a thing that your listeners should, you know, pay careful attention to. And I mean, again, recognizing that in Canada, we do have a legal system. If you want to act in the context of that legal system, uh, you are going to find uh, a particularly negative effect by asserting those kinds of things without any bases. Mm. And, uh, you know, landing in jail is not something that is uh, normally what people want to do sure. <laughs> or getting punitive costs awards uh, or, you know, being barred from even asserting your rights in court without leave of the chief justice of that court. Those are pretty serious uh, impediments that can affect one's life significantly. And, uh, you know, so entering into that kind of, uh, you know, sometimes it's been referred to as pseudo legal theory area is, is something that, uh, one would do with a lot of caution and, and certainly happy to have conversations with people that would would want further information on that. But it's, it is certainly a concerning uh, situation. I can provide you, for example, with a with a case, a leading case in Canada that has kind of been utilized to shut down a lot of those kind of activities in the courts across the country. Okay. So you said vex vex vexatious litigant designation? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking, Chris, we could maybe adopt that for church purposes, a vexatious <laughs> congregant designation 100%. for people who refuse to sit. Throw them out. I want to land the plane with a couple of um, very practical questions. So, so the first one is, if a person wants to affect change in the legal system in Canada, they're looking around, they're thinking, okay, we got, we got a good history. There's a lot of good stuff about our legal system, but there's clearly some holes in it. What are some steps a person could take to do so? Excellent question. And I, I would lay out a few different grounds. I would certainly say that, you know, in a constitutional country such as ours, where we have a, a set out document of principles that are important principles, right? Our constitution, our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms sets out the fact that we we believe in the rule of law and the supremacy of God and sets out fundamental freedoms for, for ordering Canadian society, um, that it's worth defending those freedoms. And if at first you don't succeed, don't quit. And that uh, requirement to persist is something that uh, we need to see in Canada. And so, you know, for example, having worked with the Justice Centre since 2013 and and now, you know, being part of a team of lawyers from across the country that are continuing to work on cases, uh, again, funded by donations to the Justice Center, the ability to persist in these constitutional cases, to uh, continue to pu push arguments before the court and expose the absurdities, even within judicial ru rulings, uh, is essential, but can only be done when Canadians, for example, would support and donate to the Justice Center to enable our work to continue. So that's one aspect. And, and you know, I, I'll go into a couple others regarding the culture and political realm. But, but to park on this legal aspect, which is obviously where I live, I think it's important for Canadians to get a perspective of how, if they want to see change in their legal system, it's important to get a perspective of how change has happened 
in our legal system. Of course, you can go back to, uh, you know, the, the, the view of, of slavery, for example, in the British Empire, where you have, you know, individuals pursuing that cause for nigh 50 years before they finally saw the eradication of slavery, a gross injustice against our fellow human beings um, in the British Empire. And that, that took legal efforts, that took many different political efforts, and that was incremental changes all along the way. But, but even more recently, uh, and particularly from a legal precedent, perhaps consider how changes have been happening in uh, areas such as abortion and euthanasia. You know, for example, in 1968, uh, Dr. Morgenthaler began violating the law around abortion in Quebec. In 1969, you saw a, a, a small legislative uh, allowance for some abortions uh, in the criminal code. But in 1973, uh, Dr. Morgan was was charged criminally. Uh, again, charged in, I believe, 1975, 1976. Uh, he spent time in jail. He brought a constitutional challenge and went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1975, and he lost that challenge. Eventually, prosecutors stopped prosecuting him in Quebec. Uh, he lost his medical license for a year. Uh, he then proceeded to open clinics in other provinces. It wasn't until 15 years after he was first criminally charged that he finally won a case in the Supreme Court of Canada, overturning that narrow uh, allowance for abortion in Canada in 1988. He then further won a case in 1993. You know, that's decades of work and legal work. Uh, and, and that, for example, was how the abortion laws were changed in Canada in a significant way. He thought that that was a fundamental right to pursue and through such activism. And of course, there was also a very public act of that too. You might recall, for example, him debating an individual on TV for one hour on the public CBC broadcast. Uh, on this very issue. So a lot of people's hearts and minds changed between 1968 and 1988. And, uh, you know, the, the issue of euthanasia, for example, uh, there had been long a push of, of activists to, to see people euthanized in our health system with government funding um, and support. And in 1993, they took a case to the Supreme Court and lost. That's the Rodriguez decision. But they didn't stop. They kept going. They kept pushing. They kept applying. And in 2015, in the Carter decision, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, permitted euthanasia in certain limited cir circumstances. And of course, what we've seen now is we've, we've seen an absolute horrendous expansion of that to, to even jeopardize, in my view, the safety and security of Canadians protected under Section 7 of the Charter, not to be killed by their government simply yeah. because they're having a depressive episode or, or simply because they're a minor child in Quebec where there's doctors literally advocating for the termination of life, the killing of children. And so we see that, you know, uh, in these particular situations, there is a longevity. It was 27 years between the advocacy in Rodriguez at the Supreme Court yeah, and evil, the advocacy in, in Carter. Those are good examples of where evil is incredibly persistent. And sometimes the righteous are just looking for their, you know, looking for the escape hatch to descend so they can 
get to heaven. And I, and I think I'd like to see an application of those illustrations. I'd like to see more Christians develop a tenacious spirit, a persevering spirit to be persistent, to not give in, to not cut and run, to to take the penalties and to take the the consequences of standing for righteousness. I so I appreciate you bringing those to mind. Yeah, and I mean, you know, our context here, people think, oh, our rights have all been lost in COVID. The very first COVID case has now reached the Supreme Court. We finally reached the Supreme Court with the very first COVID case where we're asking them to leave. Some of our COVID cases haven't even reached the trial level yet. I mean, your audience might be aware of the stay-at-home order. Well, that case goes to hearing uh, in July. And, and, you know, some of these matters, uh, you know, for example, that that young man in, in uh in Ontario, popular situation in 2020, charged for shooting hoops by himself. Right. Well, we went to trial on that today. And in the trial, of course, thankfully, the Crown uh, withdrew all the charges against that individual oh, facing great. their lawyers in court today. And so, you know, the, the, we, the legal system in Canada, if you look at other circumstances, regardless of your view on those circumstances, you must persist. And you must persist without exception when you're defending your freedoms. And 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 now to you know maybe maybe more practical, uh, there is absolutely an undeniable correlation between court decisions and the views of the public in Canada. Uh, one might like to think that again you know the judiciary is is only engaging in principled analyses and and there's no element of public. Uh, perception and opinion that affects a case because there isn't that permission. Could you actually say that again? Because I want our people to hear that. I want them to hear you say that again, because I think it's so important. Yeah. Well, again, the, the idea that our judiciary uh, is not affected by public opinion and perceptions is, is countered by the fact that there is a very consistent correlation in Canadian history and in Canadian law between public opinions, the mainstream opinions, and including opinion polls, and what happens in the results of Supreme Court of Canada decisions. And so what does that tell you and your audience? It tells you that your efforts to engage in the public conversation, to persuade your neighbors and friends about the need for protecting freedoms and respecting rights and about not simply abandoning a cause that maybe went to a trial court or an appeal court or even the Supreme Court and didn't go the way you thought it should. That does not end the fight for freedom in Canada. In fact, that should only make you persist in your role as a citizen of this country, engaging in the public square, in the public conversation to advocate for the rationality of protecting what you know, has been a wonder, really. The idea of a free and democratic society where humanity has prospered more than in any other time in all of the measurable uh, ways, whether that's freedom of speech and the ability of people to make up their own minds in regard to their faith and religion, or the advancement of science or the betterment of health or the uh, progression of the economy, whichever ground on which you're focused, it only is fostered in a free and democratic society to the extent that we have enjoyed in our country. 
and it's worth defending. It's worth protecting. And, and then moving on from that as well, why not continue to push your elected leaders on these fronts? Of course, we recognize that the citizens, you know, through organizations such as the Justice Center have the ability to advance legal cases that they support to defend the freedoms of others. So they have that ability to have direct impact by saying, we will donate to this organization which will advance cases supporting freedom. That's one way. But don't forget, you also have a responsibility as a citizen to engage in the democracy happening around you, whether it's on your school board, whether it's on your uh, city council, and certainly your provincial and federal government. Because at those levels, those government entities and elected leaders need to be advocating and representing your interests as citizens. And if they're not hearing from you, how can they represent that? in the elected legislatures. And and one more point before I kind of get off this little uh, soapbox here. The provincial government through the cabinet and the federal government also appoint the judges in this country. And this is a conversation that is not often had in Canada, but it does matter. Just as everyone is a person and and who you are will affect what you do and how you do it. It matters, the men and women that are appointed to the bench in this country. And for too long, we have, as Canadians, acted as if it doesn't matter and allowed our elected leaders to get away with acting as if it doesn't matter. And they can just appoint whoever happens to come up in the queue next as ascribed by some uh, judicial council body or something like that. It is the responsibility of your elected premier and cabinet, governor and council, uh, to make appointments of judges that would respect the rule of law and the fundamental freedoms of Canadians. And that is, that is an aspect of the, again, the separation of powers, but the appropriate consideration and responsibility that our executive has. And again, that executive being accountable to the citizenry is uh, ultimately a, an aspect of our Canadian society that we should not overlook and should not ignore for the sake of you know, we don't want to look American on this while we recognize that, yes, in fact, the people you appoint does matter. We wouldn't say that it doesn't matter in any other sphere. And it also matters in the judicial sphere. And so I, I hope those yeah, three points, both persisting in the legal fight and enabling it to continue by your support, uh, persisting in the public conversation and persisting in the fight for freedom uh, through the political process, including the, the recognition that the political appointees to the bench, uh, they're not a political appointee, but they're appointed by po people who are elected politically, that those people uh, need to hear from their uh, constituents on all of those grounds. Right on. That's very informative and also, uh, you know, inspirational at the same time that, that gives, I think it's going to give people a lot of hope. Final question. So if a person... Um, Let's say a person says, I want to affect change. I want to become a, a paralegal or I want to become a lawyer in Canada. But I'm, I'm concerned about the, the ideological bent of the law schools. I, I, man, I might have to sit under three years of someone hammering woke ideology at me. What, what do you think would help them prepare for such a career? And maybe a, maybe a more direct question, is it, is it even worth pursuing a career in law these days? Excellent question. And I, I might turn this back to you, uh, Pastor Rock, because, you know, as I recall, there was an individual by the name of Daniel, 
who was educated in a very uh, hostile land, might you say. Uh, and I don't know if it was three years, but it might have been somewhere around there. Uh, but he dared, as the saying goes, dared to be a Daniel. He dared and his friends to, to not lose their convictions, even while going through what was almost undoubtedly a, a good dose of indoctrination. Yeah. And, and so it's important to know where you're going. If you, if you think you're, you know, that law school isn't, you know, a proper analogy to Babylon, well, maybe, maybe rethink that because it doesn't hurt to recognize that, that you will need to stand up and probably stand up alone. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue an education and the qualifications which will enable you to serve others. Uh, we still in this country uh, have the freedom, largely. Uh, of course, we are currently fighting in different spheres where you know people are trying to keep uh, citizens out of you know this educational program on the basis of this view or on the basis of the lack of this particular medical procedure. But don't let the prospect of having to encounter a view, even an oppressive imposition of that view on you, stop you from doing what you believe is right and what you believe is a, is a calling worth pursuing. I absolutely believe that lawyers can and do make a difference in Canadians' lives and in the defense of freedom every day. I was just in the courtroom, for example, in British Columbia where we brought an abuse of process motion against the public health officer, where we said, based on the factual record that is now coming out, the prosecution of pastors who held church services, even with all the safety protocols that were in place in other settings, but they were prohibited from holding those services. In light of all the facts, there's an abuse of process going on here. We were able to make very, and we had to make very serious arguments against what would otherwise be the presumed good faith of a government actor. You need to know the law on how to do that. In the context, you had the public health officer prohibiting churches from meeting outdoors, even though other groups were permitted to meet outdoors all the time, including other religious groups. But she just didn't tell other religious groups. And then when three churches applied to the court for their rights to worship, she brought an injunction against them. Now, thankfully, we were able to defeat that injunction. And then after that, she then said, okay, well, now I'll give you an exemption. Now you can meet outdoors. However, two days before, the public health officer had permitted another religious group to meet indoors. But she told our clients, it's too unsafe to meet indoors. And so these contexts matter because, again, the, the, one of the questions you asked is how can we ensure that it's not so easy for the government to violate our rights the next time? Part of the way we ensure that is by not letting them get away with conduct that, that has been imposed against Canadians uh, without justification. You, so, I mean, this is the first step in that process. This is at a provincial trial court. But we cannot allow this to be simply swept under the rug. Canadians haven't heard about this. The court uh, is now considering actually the government's motion to not even let us make that argument in court. We are asking to cross-examine the public health officer on these grounds because these are very serious concerns. If you're lying to one group of citizens, 
how can you be trusted when you make these broad orders that affected everybody's life? And now the government is prosecuting these pastors simply for conducting their worship services in as safe as a manner as they possibly could. You know, for example, in Alberta, there was a serious concern raised. Our premier got canned from his own party. The public health officer got fired from her job. The entire board of the government health provider in Alberta got fired, and the chief executive of that board got fired. All of those individuals might have some second thoughts if they ever grab the reins of power again before they adopt the kinds of approaches that they did here. And that's the kind of thing, both legally and politically, that our elected leaders need to be aware of. If we let them uh, simply get away with it and not raise these issues in court or in the political process, uh, we, will, we will see revocation of our freedoms for the next emergency. But if we continue to persist now in saying, what grounds did you have for acting in this regard previously, they might, and, and if they're actually held to that account, not just winning one case, but having to win multiple cases and having to actually answer to the court, uh, that may have a significant effect both on the psyche and on the legal precedent that is set to hold our government leaders uh, to their responsibilities under our Constitution, which is to respect the fundamental freedoms of Canadians. Well, Marty, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. I, I've I've been encouraged by our conversation. If you're listening to the show and there was maybe a, an aspect there you wanted to uh, review, hit the rewind button and uh, listen to it again. This is the kind of stuff that we all need to be familiar with. We we want to be people of grit and perseverance and to stand for righteousness. And we also want to remind ourselves that the decisions we make as Canadians are going to have potentially enduring effects on future generations. So it's important for us to fight not only for our own God-given rights and freedoms, but also for the implications of those decisions on future generations. I want to remind our listeners, too, to continue to champion a Christian perspective on all of this, that we, we champion the fact that God has given us freedoms that are not revocable. We'll remind our listeners that the Church of Jesus Christ is the first truly free institution in Western civilization. And we need to do a good job in educating people and pushing for pushing for laws in our country that are grounded in God's revelation of himself in Scripture. Uh, we reject the belief that the state uh, can be morally neutral. There's always some final authority. We all know there's always some final authority that a citizenry has to appeal to as the basis of their law. And I like what it says at the beginning of our charter, that we believe in the supremacy of God. The reality is we're just not acting that way. But I'd much prefer to be under this, the supreme laws of a benevolent God than the tyrannical laws of a hedonistic or humanistic state. So thank you, Mr. Moore, for joining us. And I'll give Chris the final word That's as good. we wind up our program. Excellent. Well, I was just going to say thank you as well. Thank you to both of you um, for sharing that and for modeling the tenacity for all of us in terms of how long this long a fight for righteousness takes. But to our listeners, if you've enjoyed today's show, just do us a favor and share it out on social media and uh, get the word out. Um, Leadership Now, just so you're reminded, is available on the pursuitofglory.org website, which is a resource site 
of Pastor Aaron's, as well as over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast app. So you can download that or find it on any of your favorite podcast providers. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.